Hello, it's me, Sarah. I'm back after a somewhat prolonged hiatus from the Mandyland universe. And I wanted to record a little, another little monologue to share with all of you, just as an update, since it's been so long. Um, I was about to write notes and sort of like make an outline for myself, but I do that so much in my job, making outlines and such, that I decided not to. I'm just going to freestyle this, but I have three main points that I wanted to make, so you can hold me to that. So I'm going to sit here. I'm actually in San Francisco at the moment at a conference. Just the tail end. I'm going to be heading back to Florida tomorrow. Um, and yeah, a lot's been going on. And I thought, it's funny, I started the year off thinking, I really want to branch off and have my own podcast. I have so much content that I want to share. And there's so many things I want to talk about. But then I really quickly fell into this state of not wanting to talk about much and uh, feeling kind of detached from the world, which I'll get into. That's the second point I want to talk about. Um, but I think now I'm in a bit of a mindset where I have a few things that I'd like to get off my chest. So here we go. So point number one, it has been almost exactly one year since I found out that I had metastatic cancer. The way that this all unfolded, I can't remember if I've explained this story before, but I forget what I've said previously in episodes, so I'm sure y'all don't remember the precise detail of the event. How it worked is I had my three-month interval kind of regular follow-up scans that I've been doing since the sarcoma first appeared in my arm. Uh, That was at the end of last March, 2018. And I think it would definitely have been around the 26th or 27th of March, I would have gotten a phone call or I had an appointment with my surgical oncologist, at which the point was raised that there was some tumor growth in my liver, and we needed to do another scan, another MRI of my liver to look more closely at the situation. So I had that done. And then that spurred the recommendation that we do a biopsy and I found out I needed to have the biopsy while I was sitting on a plane. I remember very specifically I was on a plane sitting on the tarmac at the Gainesville airport about to take off to go to a meeting in Alabama. Um, (laughs) It was just funny because you're like sitting on a plane and there's people next to you, people in front of you and behind you and all I was saying into the phone was it's in the liver. So great, you know, great times. Life happens no matter where you are. Uh, and then I went back to Florida, scheduled the liver biopsy that happened actually on my birthday. Um, I kind of did that on purpose just so I would always remember the date that I had my liver biopsy because I felt like it was going to be important. So that would have been what my 36th birthday went for the biopsy. And then two days later, I remember I was walking to work. Uh, and actually going in to attend the thesis defense of one of my honors students. It was a special day. But on the phone on the way to work is when my oncologist called me and said, yo, it's metastatic, Leo, Leo Myers sarcoma. 
there's the news. So, so yeah, that was on April 12th. So this whole period is like somewhat significant in my life. And obviously a, a whole lot has happened in 12 months with regards to cancer and the having of it. So I did this for myself maybe like a month ago, but it has been interesting to look back and, and do a bit of a year in review. Think about what I've learned about the objective experience of having metastatic cancer and all that it entails, but also what's been going on in my my heart and my mind and just how it's been to get used to it and to live in that reality. So objectively speaking, one of the biggest surprises or things I didn't really consider at all as this started was how the the type of or like one of the bigger disruptions to living day-to-day life and assuming you can schedule a meeting in your calendar or, or book a flight for a trip that you want to take in three or four months we all take that for granted that's obviously something that I scaled back on or started to limit as soon as I was booking things like starting chemotherapy or um you know, having certain procedures done or like having to work around appointments or MRI scan dates and all these types of things, you, you lose flexibility in your schedule and you worry a bit more about planning things in the future because you don't know how you're going to feel or if you're even going to be able to, to be there in the bigger sense. So that's one thing. What I was making the point of is though, because you're on treatment and because you're on high alert, sort of constantly monitoring for signs that the treatment or the tumors are giving you side effects or making themselves known in ways that is concerning, you can end up in these sort of like, I'm having a weird symptom, I'm waking up in the middle of the night, it's not going away. I better talk to a doctor. We better do some emergency follow-up and make sure it's not something serious. So I didn't realize that that was going to happen. It definitely does. <laughs> it's happened a few times uh, and totally thrown me into a weird tailspin where you don't get sleep, you end up being put on steroids, or you end up having to kind of put your whole life to the, the side for a week or two while you get things worked out. So the most prominent example of this that I remember was at the beginning of September. I think I might have talked about this in a previous episode. So bear with with me for a minute. But I woke up in the middle of the night and was having numbness in my right hand, which doesn't normally happen. I still get some residual tingling and numbness in my left hand from the fact that I had the surgery to remove my tumor in my left arm. But this numbness in my right hand was weird. Like it's pins and needles, like when your hand falls asleep, but then it doesn't go away even if you shake your hand or you move your arm around a little bit. So I think it started at two or three in the morning and then I was just lying awake noticing it. And by the time it was six or 7 a.m., I figured I should probably call the oncology clinic and just report this put it on the books. Uh, So I spoke to probably a fellow who was on call. And 
even though it was potentially a side effect of the chemo drug that I had just been on, we decided to do some emergency imaging and look at whether it could be explained by a tumor in my spine or a tumor in my brain, because I hadn't had a spine or brain scan in the immediate recent history. So the next day I went in for uh, MRI of my cervical spine, and then the day after that I went in for an MRI of my brain. Unfortunately, it seemed like there were no tumors that could explain the symptom. I did find in that episode that I have a, a small tumor or mass at the level of my C3 vertebra, but it seems like it's a benign thing that's in the root of the nerve and not actually in the spinal cord or the vertebra itself, which is by means of having a, or by ways of having a tumor in the vicinity of the spine, that's exactly what you want. So thumbs up. Um, but while the imaging was going on and while we were trying to figure out what it was, they put me on a burst pack of steroids, which just totally messes with your appetite and your sleep pattern. So I didn't sleep for a week and I just felt awful. So, and plus, you know, layer on the anxiety of not really knowing if you're going to get the news that you have a brain tumor in the next 48 hours. So there's just an example of how unexpected side effects can can disrupt your life when you have a chronic health condition. Um, yeah. And I guess other times that it's worked its way in. There was a, the weird hand and foot rash or like sort of callous skin thing that I got in December, which was a direct side effect of the drug that I've been taking. Um, but then no one really understood what it was. So again, I, the doctor figuring out, you know, like, what could it not be? It's probably not a blood clot. It's probably not DVT, deep vein thrombosis, another type of blood clot. But it's still something. And then, you know, a lot of Googling and some discussions with oncologists. Finally, we figured out, oh, it's a side effect of the drug. Just take a break from the drugs. That should help. Or reduce your dose. That's what we decided to do. That was a week and a half, I think. And then the most recent one was before I did a liver procedure, um, which I'll get to in a sec. I had to go in for a, an angiogram to map the blood supply to my liver. And normally this is just a very routine procedure. They make a little incision in your femoral artery, which is the one that goes kind of like right in your the crook between your your leg and your abdomen, like in your groin, basically. And the interventional radiologist threads a little catheter in there. Um, it's like a really, really skinny tube. And it goes in through the artery and they push it up all the way into your area of your liver and then they poof out some dye that they can image with a CT scanner and so they can actually look where that dye goes and get a really beautiful image of all the arteries providing blood into your organ so I did that and then obviously it's important when they take out that catheter to get a good seal um, a good uh, healthy fusion of that incision on your femoral artery because it is a main artery in your body and if it bursts open and you start bleeding it could be pretty devastating consequences so they normally apply some pressure on the artery after the procedure and they make you lie still for a period of time uh, and I guess it's common practice now to put in this little uh, it's called a closure device but it's really 
it's kind of like this substance. I think it's called like screw or something. It's like liquidy and pliable in one state, but then it's as soon as it's exposed to air or another type of uh, environment, like maybe the moist environment of being in your body, it turns solid and it creates a little like lump, like a scaffold around your artery so that there's no risk of the hole in the artery popping open. So they put that thing in and uh, for some reason, a couple of days after my procedure, it fell off the artery and moved around. And then I got an infection at the site of the incision and it developed this massive bruise on my leg. And every it was so painful, I could hardly walk. And it was just a mess. And I was like, I remember this being painful before because I had had an angiogram a few years ago. But I don't think it was this painful. So I ended up going back to the clinic and getting seen and they did an ultrasound and they're like, yeah, we think it's an infection. We're going to put you on antibiotics, but we can still go ahead and do all the other stuff. It's just going to be kind of painful for a bit. So there you go. Another unexpected situation. I think I've had three interesting turns of events like that in the past year. So that was, you know, that's really the biggest thing that I feel has like both objectively and subjectively, emotionally, psychologically affected how I go about my day. I'm always sensitized to my body and noticing little twinges or really big obvious um, symptoms and making sure that I talk to the right people to figure out what it is. And when you're living in that, those like specific moments within those weeks or those 48-hour periods, when you don't know what it is, it can be very traumatic. Your mind goes to this place where you think, oh my God, I'm going to end up being put in the hospital. I'm going to have to take myself to the ER. And maybe this is it. Maybe this is uh, a sign that something really bad is happening and I'm not going to be able to survive, to be totally just real. So I'm very glad that none of those things have proven to be so serious, but I do feel like you just never know in this state when is it going to be something that you can't overcome. Huh. So that's, that's point number one. Um, The other, th- the other aspect of this objective experience of cancer is I've been, I made a little laundry list, like a bulleted list of all the medical things that I've gone through in the past 12 months. So just, that starts off the list, three unexpected symptoms that required some somewhat traumatic diagnosis and treatment. Um, additionally, I have now added a pretty important individual to my medical team. I spent a pretty um, important chunk of my time in April getting all my medical records together and my imaging records and sending them to Sloan Kettering in New York and being able to access their sarcoma clinic. And now I have an oncologist at Sloan Kettering who I, I get to go 
see every few months and uh, consult by email if I need to in the interim. So that's been really important and really helpful since they have a lot of expertise at that cancer facility. Through consulting with that uh, individual and that team, I was able to get a list of potential treatments to start. And so I did that. I was on a chemotherapy drug over the course of the summer. I think I did three rounds of a, that drug called trabectidin or Yondelis. That was an IV drug where every three weeks I would go into the medical oncology infusion clinic and get hooked up with an IV access to my port, which is implanted in my jugular vein. And they would give me this bag of drugs and a little pump that I take home and I sit on my couch for 24 hours and make sure that my cat doesn't get near the bag and start chewing on the tubing and release toxic chemicals into my apartment. <laughs> um, granted, it's a lot better, I think, like more comfortable to do chemo infusions on your couch at home than to have to sit in the clinic. I was very appreciative of that. But anyway, so I did that chemo over the summer and found out at the end of August that it wasn't really doing much to help the tumors, or I still had some evidence that things were growing and progressing. So from there, I went back to consulting with my oncology team, and we decided to try a different drug, uh, one that was sort of like a daily set of pills that you take. That's the drug I've been on since September, which is called Votriant or Pazopinib. Um, and it's not technically chemotherapy. It's what's called a targeted therapy that aims to specifically intervene with some of the molecular signaling pathways that could be involved with allowing tumors to grow and thrive in your body. So this one in particular, it blocks little blood vessels from growing into the tumor and supporting the tumor. So I started those pills in September and have really been on that drug regimen ever since with a few little ups and downs here and there where I kind of like increased my dose all the way up until November and then developed that side effect of my weird hand and foot rash, had to bring the dose back down and then brought it back up and then had to be scaling back again recently to allow myself to do this procedure, <clears throat> which I guess is the next thing. So having been on Votriant for, I guess, three or four months, I went back to get scanned and it looked like yeah maybe like a couple of the tumors grew a little bit but for the most part everything else is stable and so I got this message in January from my oncologist at Sloan Kettering that you know this might be your new normal this could be stability this could be what your body is going to accept as like a, a reasonable burden of tumors that it can deal with. And so we don't think that you should change your treatment, stick on the Votriant, see how it goes. No problem, like all clear. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, one thing I've been wondering about is I have this one liver tumor that's a lot bigger than all my other tumors. And it turns out you can go in and do a, a kind of relatively minor procedure called an embolization where you 
basically either block the blood supply to that specific tumor, and then it shrivels up and dies. Or, as I learned from the team in Florida, you can also directly inject radioactive microspheres <laughs> into the artery that supplies the tumor. And then those little tiny microspheres, which are basically, as the, the name suggests, microscopic beads that are loaded up with a radioactive um, isotope. In this case, it's yttrium-90. And they poof those beads into the tumor, and then they kind of just sit there in your body and emit that strong dose of radiation, but only around the tumor, not everywhere else. And then hopefully that just kills that tissue. It shrivels up and, and just doesn't really impact your body anymore. So... My oncologist at Sloan Kettering said, yeah, that's an option for you. You have this one tumor. It's kind of big. Your liver is important, but it's only affecting part of your liver, and your liver can regrow itself. So maybe if you were to do something like this now, well, you still got lots of healthy liver, it would be better in the long run. And I said that logically makes sense. So in February, I went back to Florida and had a consult with my oncology team and the interventional radiologists there. And they said, sure, we can do this procedure. And that's how I came to have that angiogram that I mentioned before that gave me the infection. And most recently, just three weeks ago, actually, I had the radioactive microspheres poofed into my body. So there you go. That's been my like year in cancer treatments and adventures. Metastatic diagnosis, new oncologist in New York, one chemotherapy regimen failed, one new targeted therapy regimen still seems to be okay, and one dose of radioactive microspheres straight to the left lobe of my liver. So it's like five pretty major things to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's where I've been, what I've been doing. I think another year in review thing that's been really important for me and my therapist was like, well, yeah, that's all the stuff that's been going on in your cancer life, but let's talk about what's been going on in your like other personal and career life. And yeah, I will certainly say without going into all those details that I've had a pretty big year in my, my science life and with everything else that's been happening. So above and in spite of all the medical procedures, I've been able to be productive and move forward with my science life. That means a lot to me. So there, that's good. So then the second point I wanted to make is a little bit more about the, the feelings and the psychology of the experience. Um, and specifically, when is it most hard? Because you think, well, you get this diagnosis, it's pretty heavy to start to imagine that there's this disease running rampant in your body that you won't necessarily be able to control. And of course, big concepts like mortality and 
amount of time that you have to do things that you care about or your ability to continue working or living your life in the same way that you have been for the past however many years. Yeah, sure, that all comes up. But those times of getting a diagnosis or deciding what treatment to do or changing treatments are very much about action. You need to have appointments. You need to have conversations with your doctors and with your your healthcare team. You might be having conversations with your family and your friends about what you really want to do. And there's a lot on your mind to with that has a lot of urgency. You're to take a an example or a, like a reference to neuroscience. You're in fight or flight mode. You're autonomically activated. Um, there's a lot of adrenaline associated with it. You're constantly thinking, okay, well, what do I need to do as quickly as possible in order to get this going, to get this treatment started, to maximize the chance that things will work? So that's fine. Like, sure, it's it's challenging, but you're psychologically occupied. So what I've learned is actually a lot harder is once you've taken care of all those emergencies and all of a sudden you can pause, take a breath and try to resume living your normal life. Kind of like when you're granted a stay, you know, things, things are not in crisis. You don't need to solve a problem. There's a person who I follow on Twitter and who's written a book who I think articulates this really well. Her name's Tiva Harrison. And the book she, it's a kind of like a graphic depiction of her experience having metastatic cancer. It's called In Between Days. Um, and the concept of In Between Days is exactly what I'm talking about. It's the fact that you're sort of trapped in this space between getting news or waiting for news in those periods of time between sets of scans um, and the imaging that tells you whether your disease is getting worse or getting better or just staying the same. Those in-between days can really be the most challenging. I totally feel her (laughs) and that experience that she articulates really well in her book and I think in in her writing that she does um, online and her posts on Twitter. So, yeah, I've had lots of moments of that experience, but the one that's most salient to me that I think of a lot now is when I was in New York early in January and I had an appointment with my oncologist there and this was when I walked in We sat down and he had looked at my scans and kind of assessed what had been happening with me for the past few months that I'd been on Votriant. Um, And contrary to the opinion of some of my Florida oncology team, he said, you know, I don't think you really need to panic. You don't need to worry that a couple of your tumors grew a little bit. Considering your state and considering that you feel really healthy, you seem to be functioning really well and um, you're tolerating the drug really well don't change everything's going pretty well I think that this is a good state for you to be in and so that really wasn't what I was expecting I was kind of prepared to be in panic mode and 
try to figure out what new treatment to do next or whether I should try to find a clinical trial to join or what were my new options. No, all of a sudden it's like, everything's actually cool. Just relax. Enjoy this period of stasis. And I guess I was pretty surprised or I wasn't really prepared for that news. It's obviously good news. But good news can be just as hard to get when you're you're sort of like in the starting block, ready to push off and prepare for the next crisis. So it didn't really sink in right away. I was I was with my friends uh, in New York, and I remember I think I spent a another day after that with my friends and their toddler, and as you know, you're kind of like distracted, and then I went to stay with another friend um, who doesn't have kids and is a medical resident. So I had a lot of time to myself. I was just chilling in her apartment, kind of catching up on work and sleep and thinking. And it didn't even really sink in the first day that I was there. I remember specifically, it was probably like a whole two and a half days or three days after my appointment. I went out for a walk in the morning to get coffee And as I was opening the door to go into the coffee place, I had this thought of us and like, what if, what if I stay alive? What if I'm not going to (laughs) die? And I had not realized up until that point how much my mind was subconsciously or consciously constantly preparing for the worst and um, planning to take care of loose ends or document things that I've thought or felt or figuring out where I wanted to move or live for the the last part of my life, if that were going to be the case. I hadn't really entertained the possibility that I could just keep going as planned or as originally planned (laughs) three or four years ago before any of this started and just really finish up the postdoc that I've been doing and apply for jobs the way that I had been planning and go and move and start my own lab and do everything like the normal human being that I had been before all this hit the fan. And it was really uh, profound. I And it was sad, or not sad, but it was emotional. I started to cry, and I was, and I felt really um, dissociated by that. And for the rest of the time that I spent in New York, I felt really sort of like all these, you know, the normal feelings of having an academic career for me, which are sadly kind of normal, like, oh my God, I haven't been productive enough for the past few months, or oh my God, I need to get this paper out as quickly as possible, or I haven't got this pilot data that I need to put in my project uh, progress report. Um, Or like, I haven't made significant steps towards moving away from the city where I'm doing my postdoc and moving into the, the future life that is my real life, that is my real job. That was the biggest thing that hit me. I felt trapped staying with my friends in the city that I like, that I really love, but feeling like I was borrowing their lives and not taking enough um, or big enough strides towards 
achieving my own life. So it was a moment that really has stuck with me. Yeah. So that's point number two. I think I'm just going to leave it at that. I was surprised or have been surprised at the challenges that we face with these moments between episodes of diagnosis or episodes of treatment. They can actually be the hardest. So, yeah. So I'm looking at the time and I actually have to go because I'm going to be meeting an old friend for dinner and I'm excited to go catch up with her. Um, I'm trying to remember what my third point was. Oh yeah, okay, this is quick, so I'll just give it a brief one. So one other thing that's happened in the past few months is that I've decided I want to get back involved with some of the cancer advocacy activities that I had been working on before I found out I was metastatic. And to make just a brief anecdote, I was in Toronto towards the end of January for a workshop relating to retinoblastoma and some of the important research that we're doing to better understand why it happens and how we can support families and patients throughout the retinoblastoma experience. And I had a few occasions where I was just like out shopping or getting my hair done and I was talking to the people in those environments about my life. They were strangers. They didn't know anything about me. And I obviously talk about my career and the fact that I'm a scientist because it's, it's important to me, and I talk about the content of my research. But when they asked me, why are you in town? And I said, oh, for a conference. And they're like, oh, are you presenting about your science? The way that I responded was, no, actually, I also do work uh, on cancer advocacy. It's another role that I play, and that's what I'm doing here. <laughs> and I had never actually made that explicit statement before, that it's something that I care about, and it's something that I do. So for the first time, I've incorporated into my identity the very act of what I'm doing by recording these podcasts um, and sharing my my experiences with this health journey. Yeah, I do some work on cancer advocacy. There you go. And it's opened up pathways, which include one that Mike has referred me to. Thanks, Mike. Shout out. Um, where I'm going to be involved with other cancer-related communities as a patient participant or patient advocate or what have you. So that's been a a newer development and an enriching thing in my life as well. So as I said, I think I'll leave it at that. Gotta go. But thanks for listening. Thanks for staying interested. Happy to report that all is well. I'm feeling great. And I hope all of you are the same. Till next time.